We're really like low We're, energy. We tonight. are so low energy tonight. Mm. Let's oh embrace my. it. Let's be chill about it. Let's be let's be literary. My wine is so far away. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Wendy Bowlesby and Melissa Kirscher. Listeners to another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I am Melissa, and this is my co-host, Wendy. And we are really low-key tonight, so we decided to like curl up with some wine, like we always do, but uh, also talk about book to movie adaptations. Yes. Now there are a ton of them. Melissa, of course, made a list. It's a very long list. It's extensive, and I'm pretty sure I could have done all of that off the top of my head, let alone without doing any searching. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, no matter what was on that list, it's probably triple that in reality. So we decided that we're going to narrow it down a bit, though, instead of, like, doing a drive-by, like, (laughs) Valentine's (laughs) Day massacre. (laughs) Like we usually do. Just spraying topics at you like bullets. <laughs> oh, you can watch this. You can watch this. You can watch this. Look, these are all vaguely connected. We're going to slow it down tonight. And we're going to talk about a double we're, handful. We're... <laughs> well, it's not a handful because a handful is like three or four. It's a double, double handful. Double handful. <laughs> it's... Why, why do I have images of brasiers that lift and separate? I know. <laughs> just, I... We just got done with Halloween, so for me, double handful connotates candy, <laughs> not boobs. I don't know. Maybe. Uh... Ah, that's very telling. <laughs> Tell me more about double handfuls, Melissa. <laughs> oh, so tonight mm. we are drinking... Another fog head wine, yes. which we drank when we were recording the the spooky ghost movies for yes. Halloween. This is a fog head red wine. Just red. That's what it is. When yeah. I said, Melissa, what do you want to drink? The Merlot or the red wine? It turned into sort of a <laughs> who's, who's on, on first <laughs> sort of comedy of errors there. But a Merlot is a red wine. Yeah, yes, but did you want to drink the red wine? Well... I still don't understand. So we're drinking... We are drinking red wine. We're drinking non-committal wine. I, <laughs> what? Why you got to put me in a box? Why you got to categorize me? I'm red wine. We are recording this on election day. So I, I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that we're drinking something really non-committal right now. <laughs> you voted. I voted. We voted. We are awesome. We are awesome. I even voted in all the tiny races because the older I get, the more I appreciate that the crazy people slip in the door at city council. That's where they start. And the Soil and Water Commissioner. Oh, boy. Got to watch out for those. (laughs) All right. So, hey, let's talk. What do we want to talk about first? We should talk. You know, I feel like we could start off with something big. Something 
big. There's a lot of something. There, There's a lot of something right at the middle of the list there called oh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Because that's eight freaking movies. It is eight freaking <laughs> movies. We're not going to get into all of that. I think no. that we'd do better to just sort of talk about <sighs> tone and choices made. Yeah. Have you seen all eight? Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you, but you have not read the books. Oh, yes. Okay, you I have. actually have read all the books, which is really impressive for me for how slow I read these days. It's true. I, there's no judgment on that. My husband oh, no. is an incredibly slow reader as well. Yeah. So, I, I have no attention span anymore. What movie for you finally hit the, the yes, now now this is it. The, the only one that really sang to me as a piece of cinema was the third one. It was yeah. Azkaban. And I think the, everybody pretty much agrees yeah. on that. Alfonso Cuaron made it a movie, whereas yes. the others felt to me kind of the, like these slaves to the book they weren't really able to become movies in their own right yeah like ticking the boxes yeah and then this has to happen and then this has to happen yeah this has to happen yeah but but azkaban that first scene from the first scene where he wasn't he reading a book under his covers the flashlight like that immediate that first scene i immediately went this is what it's supposed to be like this this is a harry potter movie yeah this is finally cinematic yeah he was finally using cinema to do some of the work of telling the story yeah instead of just taking the book and acting it out yeah which i mean yeah because the first movie is very stilted Mm -hmm. the second movie is if possible even worse yeah i don't god i barely now to be fair the second book is also really just a retread of the first book so, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really till Azkaban that the scope of the world and the arc that was going to happen started to be present. Yeah. That, that was kind of the sweet spot for me. Yeah. Now, that said, the adaptation of the book to the movie, I did actually have problems with. On the one hand, they got some, they got so much right with the tone and with taking like shortcuts mm-hmm. of like how they used the tree to denote the passing of time in that yeah. movie. It was very clever. But I had, and this has been a constant refrain, I just wish they had added five more minutes to the movie. And considering it's the shortest Harry Potter movie by far, I feel like they could have they could have fit that five minutes in. <laughs> Although I hear that and it sounds to me like a heroin addict, you know, just just five more minutes. Just five more just minutes. Just five more minutes. <laughs> the part I really wanted was something that was so deeply powerful in the book, which was when Harry makes the realization that his Patronus is a stag. Yeah. And his father was an Amagus who turned into a stag. And that connection. Mm-hmm. That was so powerful in the in the book that I'm like it it wouldn't have taken anything and it would have explained so much it would have added a level yeah 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 That's, that would that was that was a missed opportunity yeah and in generally I felt like all the stuff they took out or condensed I was really fine with but that I was like mm, you missed you missed a moment there you missed something really powerfully emotional there and then of course I hated Goblet of Fire. Yeah, which really disappointed me because I think Goblet of Fire is my favorite of the books. It is a great book. Yeah. It's a really powerful that, book. Somebody dies. Yeah, that, that I found that book to be terribly gripping. And the movie is just now not I, that good. I remember like walking out and just being like, Puh. And then eventually, because 
I I have my own slight strain of OCD. I had to buy the disc, and then I had to watch the disc, all of the discs in order leading up to the final film. Um, and when I rewatched it with distance, mm-hmm. it was better than I remembered. Okay. That said, it's still really offensive to me that we spend ten minutes on a dragon battle. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? This is what we're doing? Really? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah. Uh, Goblet of Fire is a clunky movie. It's just yeah, it's, clunky. It's it, clumsy. It it thuds along. It thuds along like a flat tire or like um, a poorly balanced wheel. Like kathunk, 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 kathunk. Or since I play roller derby, like sometimes every once in a while something will get stuck in one of your wheels. Yeah. And so as you're skating, you get this sort of rocking, sort of ricocheting coming up through your body and this really grating noise of con, 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 con. <laughs> it does not roll along smoothly at all, which is also a shame because there's so many great character moments that happen in the book with Hermione yeah. having a boy who likes her and Ron starting to not consciously realize what's going on, but it's starting to play out between the two of them. And, and of course... Everything building up to somebody dies. Yeah. It's so powerful. And and by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're just like, ah, (laughs) whatever. Kill him already. I don't care. Ah." Although, honestly, the way to have done Harry Potter would have been as a TV series, a seven-year TV series with each book being... Somebody's like going to do it. Six or seven or eight episodes. Somebody's going to do it, probably within our lifetime. I I really hope so because I think seriously, that would that's, be the BBC could make so much fucking money off of that. Yeah, we would we would like Melissa gets at least we'll we'll take a, a seventy thirty split. It was her idea, but I endorsed it. <laughs> so whoever eventually does that idea, we would like a piece of the action. Yeah. on that because we and, thought and, of it first, and we also want to you know watch it. Well, yeah. <laughs> So so make it good. Yeah, motherfucker. (laughs) The next book after that was Order of the Phoenix. And by the time that came out, the book, and you pick it up, and it's been a couple of years since the last book. Boy, he's just a whiny git and very emo and angsty. And Jesus Christ, would you just, ugh, teenagers. (laughs) But you know what? Guess what? He was a teenager. Well, but the thing is, when uh, in the lead up to the last book being released, mm-hmm. I read all of the Harry Potter back to back. Yeah. And literally finished it at like 1130 at night, picked up my car keys and got in the car to go pick up Deathly Hallows at midnight. Mm-hmm. That's how perfectly timed I had it. When you read Goblet of Fire and immediately pick up Order of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. It makes so much more sense because you have just gone through Harry watching somebody get murdered in front of him. Mm -hmm. And suddenly everything he's doing in that book makes so much more sense because he's having fucking PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) That does make sense. And it's one of the things that, again, in the movie, they don't they don't really do a good job of. Mm -hmm. And it's such an awkward that of all the movies is the movie that I feel like kind of just what? Like maybe that maybe that it made sense on the page, but it doesn't make sense in a movie sort of quality yeah. that having Harry be sort of jealous that Hermione and Ron are prefects, something so small and school related, while at the same time he's recovering from a murder, 
And then at, by the end, having the person closest to him die in front of him. I mean, it's sort of oddly structured. Yeah. But, oh, but it does have umbrage. Oh, yeah. Umbridge is so deliciously oh. hateable. And, she, and Oh, and, and the casting in the movie was so perfect. Yes. She, she was, was amazing. She was, who, was that Imelda Staunton? I I do not remember. I think Whoever it was, it was, she was amazing. Oh, she was fantastic. Oh, you just hated, hated her. <laughs> so, I mean, and in the book, you really hate her. And so when the movie came out and she was so loathsome, I'm like, oh, yeah, that the, was great. The art design that followed her around the movie <laughs> was just a stroke of brilliance. Well, so much about the, I mean, leaving aside the problems, she's great. The idea of learning defense against the dark arts and secret and the mm-hmm. secret club and the room of requirement. Yeah. And the increasing, I mean, give me more Luna. They could, you could give yeah. me lots more Luna. I just think she's delightful. I, I, and I love the structure of the book where you had a different dark arts teacher every year. Kind of meant for each movie you had a super special guest star. It's like the <laughs> guest star of the week. It was like on the love boat. <laughs> or Fantasy Island. Let's see, two of them tried to kill them. Mm-hmm. That would be year one and year two. Right, because Gilderoy Lockhart. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was Lockhart one. was. That was I another love Lockhart. One. Well, and how do you not love Kenneth Branagh? Kenneth... Just flash, so just flouncing all over the set. Hello, I'm Kenneth Branagh. I mean, it. You almost forget that Kenneth Branagh knows how to have fun sometimes, and then he shows up in Harry Potter, and you go, "Yes, yes, I like to see that Kenneth Branagh every once in a while." He can be very funny. He can be. Um, and then let's see in three competent. Yeah. Four. Four is the most interesting mm-hmm. because competent, but crazy and trying to kill you. Yeah. That's a whole sort of weird thing of Mad-Eye Moody, competent, except that's not really Mad-Eye Moody, but it kind of was because he was impersonating, but it wasn't. <laughs> what? Dun, dun, dun. Moodyception. <laughs> Mad-iception. <laughs> and then, let's uh, see, and then it was... Uh, I, I lose track. And then it was, it was Umbridge. Oh. And Ugh. who was Defense Against the Dark Arts in, in Number six? half... Oh, it was Slughorn. No, wait. Wait. No. No. No, 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 no. no. It's because Snape finally had the job in six. Yeah. Because in seven, they're not even at the school. That's right. Okay. There we go. Because I was thinking Snape for seven and eh, whatever. 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 It's like naming the seven dwarves. Yeah, the problem is that book six, Half-Blood Prince, you know that seven is going to wrap it up. And so no matter what you do there, yeah, it's just going to feel like, let's get to it. Even though they fucking kill Dumbledore. <laughs> what? But uh, I do think they made the right call to split the last book into two movies. Yeah, because there I'm, was just so much there. I because there was so much getting wrapped up to truly wrap up the series, it did not feel masturbatory. It didn't feel greedy or self-serving. I was like, no, please, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you, for, because there is no way you're going to turn that massive tome into one movie and do it any kind of justice. Because for the most part, I felt like they made really good choices, oddly enough, with book five and book six of what they chose to take out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tone on five is weird, but what are you going to do? At least it's no, it's no Goblet of Fire. At least at least rolls <laughs> along. But I remember walking out of Half-Blood Prince and being like, wow, they did a really good job of 
focusing on the parts yep. that were important. I was really impressed with the adaptation. But seven, so I love the seventh book so much. There is so much that happens in that book. And so I was just so happy that they got most of it in there. <laughs> Except somehow the last beats of the last movie don't work for me. Yeah, it's like they kind of failed to stick the landing. Yeah, it's it's the moment on the bridge with the three of them where he where he repairs his wand and then cracks the death stick and throws it over. Mm-hmm. Which actually, having just reread that book, um, at the at the end, Harry fixes his wand and then he says to the portrait of Dumbledore, and that's the part that I kind of miss. I miss the part where he gets that last interaction with Dumbledore. Right. He says, okay, I'm going to put the death stick back in your tomb. As long as I'm never defeated, the power dies with me. Right? Right. Okay, so we're done. Except we already know that all it's going to take is him getting randomly disarmed. And he's an auror. He mm-hmm. grows up to be an auror. <laughs> all it's going to take is him getting randomly disarmed. And then the power of the death stick would transfer to that person. And then it would keep going. Mm-hmm. So it's like a venereal disease. So I'm like, wait, upon this final, this rereading, I'm like, wait, that doesn't actually work. You're just really assuming that you're never going to be defeated, which granted you have, you, you are the possessor of the death stick. So that could happen, but really, I don't know about that. I don't know. So maybe it was a better idea to just break it in half and throw the pieces over. Mm -hmm. But I loved the final battle. There was a lot of final battle in that movie. The, the the last movie, movie eight, was really impressive because the entire goddamn thing was action. Yeah. Well, because the way movie they Movie seven said, was set up. Movie eight was everything else. Movie seven was the quest, the mystery, the understanding. All the pieces have now been put together. Oh, shit. And then you knock over all the dominoes and that's movie eight. And it eight. just moves down. And I do feel like one of the best parts they got right was uh alan rickman as oh, snape yeah as snape and the entire going through his memories mm-hmm. totally totally hit on all cylinders because that's one of the best parts of the book yeah is that moment when 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 all the pieces fit about snape and what i love is it's still he's still not likable no. He's still been a complete asshole to Harry, even as he has worked to protect him for Lily's sake. He still hates him because he's also James's son. And I love that complexity. Mm-hmm. I love that. That was so cool. So Conflict. So what have we learned about making an adaptation? Uh, have Rowling on your set giving you tips. Um. <laughs> but be willing to make radical changes. Yes. And try to figure out how to let the how to really truly show don't tell. Yeah, yeah. How, learn how to make the movie breathe. Okay, so yeah. next. I, I I feel like the natural progression is to talk Lord of the Rings now. Okay, because it's another series. It is, and, and it's, it's fantasy, it's, and it's recent. Um, I mean, might as well get the one-two punch out of the way. Yes, I think Viggo Mortensen has a point. The movies do get increasingly bloated yeah. and less focused as they go on. I agree. That said, I appreciate how many endings there are on Return of the King mm-hmm. because it's literally tying up the levels of story as you go. Oh, yeah. That that never really bothered me because the 
the all the endings on the end of Return of the King, that is the ending of 12 hours of movie making or 80 depending on it's which version each person you're... getting an, an yeah. ending to their story yeah yeah i mean that that is full closure and that is fine but i, I mean i do also agree with vigo on yes the other two movies are not as trim as fellowship of the ring because i fellowship of the ring to me is a perfectly paced movie it's compulsively it, watchable it is it is just absolutely perfect in the way that it is cut together it's amazing and two towers i mean suffers from being the middle chapter um i mean it's fine and you know fellowship kind of or uh, i mean uh, return of the king kind of bloats out a little bit but as a whole those are three incredibly trim films for some really dense material yep and being someone who reads Tolkien obsessively. Yep, and I am not. <laughs> <laughs> what I, and I say this with all Tolkien love, Tolkien was not a writer. Nope. He was a world builder. Yep. He was a mythology creator. If you've ever read Bullfinch's mythology, you know it's not actually readable. It's not actually stories. Mm -hmm. It's it's anthropology. Yeah. Um, and so what Tolkien wrote is... High adventure, but oh, that dialogue. <laughs> so one of the best things they did is actually put words in their mouth that kept the flavor of the epic quality of what was happening, but still sounded like words somebody would speak. <laughs> yes. I, I, being a person who hates Tolkien, <laughs> I appreciate what he did for the world of literature. I hate reading Tolkien. You know, if we're gonna accuse I, Jackson of bloat, yeah, I think we oh need no, to, I think we need to throw we, the we, stone farther back at Tolkien. Yeah, goddamn, I fucking hated those books. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and Jackson's credit, I really like the Lord of the Rings movies. I hate the books. I like the movies a lot. I I feel like. Jackson and Philippa Boyens and Fran Walsh did an amazing job of looking at Tolkien's material and drawing out the everything. Human, the human story. The, the human stories and and making it into a movie. I mean, all of my complaints about the Harry Potter films not really sitting up and singing as films, except for the one except the one exception being Azkaban, the Lord of the Rings trilogy feels like movie making on grandest scale oh yeah i mean that that is cinema man it it's awesome it's big but it's small mm -hmm. and each of those characters is so well crafted and, and there's so many little interchanges that give you more of the pieces of who these people are and what what is important to them and what is at stake for them and and even like pippin who operates mostly in sort of blind innocence. Mm -hmm. And he's used throughout the movie as this is what will be lost, is the capability of looking at the world in this way mm -hmm. if we don't win, which is great. But, I mean, as much as I love the books, the love story between Arwen and Aragorn is very... <sighs> <laughs> it's very... Epic poetic, mm -hmm. right? And she loved him with a love that was eternal, and he loved her more than man has ever loved. And it's all very epic poetic, but it certainly isn't passionate. Right. And, you know, you could quibble about 
some of the choices they made in the story of like her fate is tied to the ring and you have to you have to win or else she's gonna die Mm -hmm. um she is on her way to the havens she she's left i'm never gonna see her again you know we broke up because that's best all of those choices which are not in the books (laughs) are such good choices though because they're true to what's really happening and it really draws out it really shows something that wasn't even even in the book which is if you're immortal Mm -hmm. when you're a tolkien nerd like i am the character of Elrond is fascinating yeah. because he's been around forever. <laughs> OMG. Oh, sweet Jesus. The shit that the shit that elf has seen. And when you really wrap your head around the fact that he's going to leave and live forever somewhere else and leave his daughter behind and never see her again. Mm-hmm. In the book, it's this kind of beautiful poetic line. Um no record is there of their final parting beyond the ends of the world, never to see each other again. Right. It's, it's very, it's beautiful poetry, but in the movie, that exchange between them, as you see that Elrond is just like, just go, go to the Havens. What do you, I, I don't want to lose you. You're my daughter. It makes it personal. And that's what Jackson got right. You can feel the stakes and you can feel the blood. You can feel the moment in Helm's Deep when Aragorn is like, we're going to die here mm-hmm. and I and I will still stand with them. And I am the last of my line <laughs> and I would rather die here with these people than care about that because this is what's important right here. That's mm-hmm. great. It's just great shit. Yes. I'm going to take a brief aside to say, the Hobbit did not need to be three movies. Yeah, fuck that noise. Ooh, ooh, where do we go from here? Okay, quick shout out on Da Vinci Code. Oh, yes, let's do Da Vinci Code. This is going to be Big very point. brief. The main point about the Da Vinci Code is the point that sometimes what seems perfectly reasonable on the page, when brought to full life on the screen, makes you go, well, that's just ridiculous. Is that the albino monk? Yeah. <laughs> the, the six foot tall albino monk assassin because when you're in a, a stealthy assassin coming to kill you what you want to be is huge white and in a monk's robe because in the books he is wearing a monk's robe when he does it <laughs> who would you have cast in da vinci code <sighs> actually not quite right, but more tonally, somebody like Daniel Craig. Oh, interesting. And I know Daniel Craig is hot, so it's not the hotness factor. It's that sort of Daniel Craig in uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo mm-hmm. manages to look kind of nebbishy, kind of bookish. Yeah. That Daniel Craig. Okay. I, I wanted someone who looked a little bit less I'm an everyman and a little bit more... I'm an academic. Paul somebody, Giamatti. Yes. Somebody Paul Giamatti. a little bit more professorial. Okay. Ooh, Mark Ruffalo would have been great. Ooh. More things for Mark Ruffalo to do. I'm there all for need that. to be more things for Mark Ruffalo to do. Um, so yeah, the Da Vinci Code, which I is... Can, I can think of some things that Mark <laughs> Ruffalo can do. <laughs> um, the Da Vinci Code is one of my favorite trashy fucking novels it's 
so just bullshit. I need to read this thing. I mean, it's so unapologetic. That's what I love about it. It's like, I'm going to write this fucking novel. Yes. And so I really wanted to like the movie because what they needed to do is national treasure that shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, Nick Cage in the leading role would have been the best thing ever. <laughs> would have been the best thing ever. Well, he does like eight movies a year now. Yeah, I mean, he, I'm sure they, they could have gotten him. Exactly. He can he can film a movie in a weekend. <laughs> Seriously. They should have gotten Nick Cage for it. But yeah, the problem with a book like The Da Vinci Code that is so patently redonkulous, recoculous, recray-cray... <laughs> is recraculous? I just made up a new word. We should patent that. Recraculous. Recraculous. I don't know. <laughs> the problem, we, we, we found where the wine went. <laughs> the problem with a, a book like that is if you're going to turn that into a movie where there's going to be a six foot tall albino monk assassin. That should be your defining point. You need to read that book, find the most ridiculous part and make that and put the pin in there and say, this is the center of this movie. This is what is anchoring it. And when what is anchoring your movie is a six foot tall albino monk assassin, you need to make the movie around that (laughs) fit. You need to make the movie around that go, by the way, our killer is a six foot tall albino monk assassin. Not... Our hero is Tom Hanks. No. 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 That is not the movie you're making. <laughs> you're making the movie with a six foot tall albino monk assassin. <laughs> I feel like we should move on to Jaws from that for some okay, reason. Okay, yeah, that's kind of where my brain was headed. Let's, let's top off a little. Boop. Because I feel for Jaws, we need to drink up a little. Well, yeah, there's a lot of wine in that book. Plus, also, a lot of wine in the movie. Yeah. I love 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 the moment where he comes in dreyfus comes in with a bottle of red and a bottle of white and he's like i wasn't sure what you'd be having for dinner so i brought both yeah what that says it says so much about his character Uh uh-huh the first off he cares that you brought the right bottle but he's also kind of invasive enough that he's like I'm totally going to just crash your dinner and you're going to feed me, right? <laughs> and then the way he's like, are you going to eat that? And he just pulls the plate over and starts eating it. <laughs> well, it, it, the beautiful thing about that whole interaction, well, about the whole movie really, is that they figured out how to <clears throat> take that book, which is really saddled with like two additional huge plot lines, and break it down just to, to the bare essentials and turn it into this rip-snorting thriller horror movie. And is it, it does it have to do with the shark? Keep it. Yeah. Does it have to do with the shark? Nope. Yeah. Throw it. Out it goes. Like the you know this whole subplot with the uh, the mayor being you know indebted to the mafia. Yeah, and then there's all this stuff about. That you know, uh, Hooper is having an affair with Brody's wife. And well, it's not an affair; it's a one-time shot. And, yeah, it's a one-time shot. But there, there's a there's a sex thing happening. And, and I actually would say it's not so much that Hooper's having an affair as much as oh, she's having Brody's wife. She's stepping out. <laughs> is stepping out, and she's got some serious self-hating 
issues. And yeah. while I actually but, found all that character stuff really interesting. Oh yeah, it it really was because it 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 comes into this interplay of, you know, Brody's the islander in the book. Uh-huh. And and she comes from kind of the upper crust. And Hooper She's one of the summer people. She's one of the summer people. And Hooper was the younger brother of somebody she dated when she was younger. And he, so he was also from that social strata. And so they're kind of connecting later in life. And And so her going after him was kind of trying to reclaim this. This moment of glory. Yeah. But at the same time, what I like in the book is that she loves her life. Yeah. She really does. Except she feels she has this weird lingering guilt that she didn't, she should have done better, even though she's perfectly happy with what she did and she likes her life. There's this nagging sort of, but I was supposed to want more, wasn't I? Yeah. And so then she flogs herself with it. And then, so she turns into a shrew every summer when the summer people show up and she knows she is. And he puts up with her, which is amazing because that's some fucked up shit. <laughs> So there's a lot of really neat character stuff that's happening. Yeah. Although Hooper in the book is pretty bland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, He's he's, he's just a dude. I mean, the character that you get in the movie is a lot more interesting. Yeah, and part of that is just Dreyfus bringing it to the role. Well, yeah. But, I mean, it's the script, too. Yeah, the the script has a lot of verve. And, I mean, they were writing the script as they were making the movie. And it was because it was so collaborative, because having read the Jaws log, and you know that they were all just getting together in the evening and sort of talking this stuff out, and, well, what about this? And also, as they're sitting on the boat waiting to shoot for hours... Yeah, because the, the... the shark would never work. Or they'd be waiting yeah. for a, a sailboat to cross out of the shot and behind. Mm-hmm. And that could take an hour. Yeah. Dear listeners, if you want to read a short and fascinating book, read The Jaws Log. Which it is. is by one of the screenwriters of the film. And it's his memoirs about making the film. And you will learn so much about the art of making movies and the backstage Hollywood and all the business deals and drama and film history. And it's a quick read. It's 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 amazing. It's It's a a small little book and it's also a very captivating book that you will just plow through. It, it It is like a masterclass in filmmaking in, what, 150 pages. Yeah, it, it it's great. And but you know, going but back to the novel. Very, it's very economical yeah. storytelling yeah. in the film. I'm going back to the mm. film, sorry. Mm-hmm. In the film, it's very economical in that again, going to show don't tell, going to little snippets that indicate like you know that Hooper has tons of money because they're on this fancy boat. Mm-hmm. But here he is, he's about to go off and work at the Oceanographic Institute. And so you know that there's a little bit of there's something about the way it all plays out, even though I don't think it's ever explicitly stated of, here's a man that has all this money and his family is like, what are you doing? Why are you, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but he does tell the great story about why he got fascinated with sharks. Yep. That's a great story. Mm-hmm. You get the moment with Brody and his son, which gives you such an insight into their family. It's just it's such a smart script out of what is really a kind of a schlocky book. Yeah. Although it, it fascinates me. The, the book took the world by storm when it came out. 
And I read it and Yeah. I am okay. Woo. Air raid. <laughs> I feel like I should howl like a dog. Oh, a curfew is dying. It's kind of like trying to watch Halloween now is not scary. Yeah. Because it has been so imitated, it has become such a cliche that if even, no matter how innocent you are, <laughs> if you try to watch it, you're like, well, this is dull. Mm -hmm. I feel like trying to read Jaws now. It's kind of the same thing. It's not scary. I don't understand why anybody reading this book is scared. And I've read books that have scared me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, this, I was I mean, like, I think I grew up in the 80s with Stephen King novels. Yep. And yeah, terrifying. Fucking but, Pet Cemetery, man. Oh, oh, boy. Terrible movie. Scary-ass book. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of adaptations. But yeah, Jaws, I, yeah, for some reason it tapped into something in 1974, 1975 that I clearly do not understand right now. And it was a huge bestseller and what's funny is especially you know what the book reminds me of the italian job <laughs> can we all guess why because it just stops just stops there's just no stops. ending literally i'm getting down to it i'm reading the novel and i you can feel there's like three or four pages left so i'm like okay okay so it's the climactic scene okay and he's killed okay and it just stops. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't even get back into shore or even indicate they're going back to shore. Nope. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean they, Kimosabe? <laughs> because the, because the, different people live and die at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wonder why yeah. they chose to keep Hooper alive in the movie. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, Quint dies. Yeah. He dies in, in a very boat. different way. But, well, how does he die in the book and blank it's not even memorable that's the really terrible part i hooper dies then i was like what does the boat sink i don't remember see yeah the I book know. is not memorable yeah well the the ending of the book i i i liked several parts of the book but yeah the ending's not memorable there there was one moment of tension in the book for me and that's the dinner party where Brody starts getting drunk and I'm like oh shit's going to yeah. go down yeah oh you need to sober up my friend and that was the tension was the more like social awkwardness of Brody getting drunk yeah it's me getting there going oh yeah i've been there man don't do that don't do that don't do that <laughs> don't, don't do, do that. that that was no. the most tense part of reading it for me so there's the difference <laughs> But uh, now, but, that it, but it's interesting to see echoes of the book crop up in the movie as just like little hints of what was in the book because you see Brody drinking profusely mm -hmm. at, in certain scenes, but it's, you, it, your attention isn't directly drawn to it. But it's kind of used as additional character building moments between the other characters. Because, I mean, as you mentioned, Hooper shows up at the two bottles of wine and immediately Brody just grabs one and... Just, pours it into a jelly glass. I mean, a huge tumbler, and he fills it up, and he's like... And then he holds the bottle out. Did you want some? <laughs> and wasn't there something already in the glass? He just mixes it just in or something. Whatever. Something horrible like that. And and you can just tell that that's the night of day between... Night and day between Hooper and Brody. You know, it's... 
guy who knows the difference between red and wine with different dishes and give me just, the alcohol just pour the bottle into the glass is this going to get me drunk then i will drink it thank you very much <laughs> well and they what they i mean like making brody an outsider as opposed to the insider yeah and switching that and making brody afraid of the water um, you know, it just, it's like, well, of course you would do that. It would, it adds so much tension. This man does not want to go out on this boat. Mm-hmm. This is a nightmare before you even add in the shark. <laughs> so that's an interesting adaptation in that they change so much. They even change the tone. Yeah. But clearly the, the, mo- the resulting movie is this wonderful piece of cinema. Uh huh. But if they tried to make the movie directly from the book, it would not have been nearly as good. No, it would have been a very different movie. It would have been much more interpersonal drama. I, I that would have been like movie of the week on TV, sort of, or sort stuff. of some sort of weird like high-handed BBC. You know, the failure of our marriage is, and the jaw, the and shark, shark is, is a, a metaphor yeah. for. The hidden undercurrents of society. <laughs> undercurrents, currents, currents. Oh, 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 oh. heavens! <laughs> All right. So you wanted to talk about Johnny got his gun. I, I do want, not know this. Yeah, Johnny got his gun. Um, is kind of at the forefront of my mind right now because I actually found a copy of the book in an antique store a few weeks ago, and I'm reading it right now. It's by Dalton Trumbo, and it's one of the great anti-war novels where. It was written in between World War One and World War Two, and has kind of changed meaning over the years. But the book centers around a character who has gone off to war, and he has lost his arms and his legs and his face, and but he is still alive. So, and he is deaf; he cannot talk. He is trapped within his body. Oh my god. And the entire book is this stream of consciousness. It starts when he awakes in the hospital and he's trying he's he's kind of in this daze and he's hallucinating and he's and it's kind of the swirl of memories. And in between the memories he slowly figures out what has happened to him because he has no way to figure out so what he, is happening. And happened. I would assume he's also blind. Yeah, he's blind. He can't see anything, he can't speak, he can't communicate, he can't move. And, but it, it is this, this book, the entire thing is locked inside this person's head. Ugh. And. That's a horror movie. Yeah. It, it's, it's a very interesting book and it's written by Dalton Trumbo. It's wonderfully written. Um, it's very, very potent stuff. And you read this and you go, how the hell would you make a movie out of this? What movie did they? They made Johnny Got His Gun. It was 1971 film directed by Dalton Trumbo, the author of the book, uh, starring uh, Timothy Bottoms as the unfortunate soldier. And actually, it's a very interesting movie. Um, It definitely has that early 70s awkwardness to it. Like, there there was a certain awkwardness to, like, 1970, 1972 movies, especially, like, war movies. But it's kind of this chain of consciousness string of memories which are all filmed in color 
And then every once in a while, you, it starts feeding into footage of the hotel or the, uh, the, the hospital room. So you actually see Johnny and in, in all of his bandages and stuff. Uh, that's all filmed in black and white. Huh. And there, there are hallucinations which are in color, and, and but it kind of all weaves together in kind of this stream of consciousness, hallucinatory way. The imagery is really interesting uh, to the point that there's a there's a Metallica video that takes footage from the movie. Uh, if you've ever seen the video for Metallica's One, huh. all, with with the guy in all the bandages and his face is covered and he's struggling in the bed, that's all from Johnny Got His Gun. Huh? Yeah, fascinating stuff. So I wanted to bring that up just because I think that's one of the more interesting adaptations. Well, that, that I know of. would lead sort of naturally then to for for me to comment on the Princess Bride. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I read the Princess Bride before they even talked about making a movie. I read this in the early eighties, and I loved the book. I absolutely loved it. The book is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The book is deeper than the movie. Okay. Um, because what they do in the book is the construct of the book is here is a man who, when his son comes of age, get reaches like a certain point in his life and his son's sick or something. And he's like, oh, 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 get him for his birthday, this book, The Princess Bride. Because when I was his age, my father read it to me mm-hmm. and he read it out loud to me. And I loved this book. I absolutely loved it. And his father's like a psychologist or something. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole overtone of, you know, overly academic parents with, <laughs> a, with a son they can't quite reach, mm-hmm. etc. Um, and he's like, and he's traveling and it's like, oh, it's his birthday. And okay, get, it, get him this present for me. And so, and then he comes back and he's like, oh, did you read the book? And his son, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what was your favorite chapter? Oh, the first chapter. Really? Because there's so much more that happens in that book that is so much better. (laughs) And he quickly finds out his son couldn't get past the first chapter because the book is horribly unreadable. And he goes and he looks at it and he realizes his father read it out loud to him and his father edited it along the way. Ah. And so the construct of the book is this sort of these bookends that are the, the... the interpreter the Mm -hmm. the person doing the adaptation giving you this story and then he's like okay so now i'm going to tell you the story of the princess bride and so he'll be going along and going along and then there'll be this sort of aside of like and then s morgenstern because it's all the princess bride by s morgenstern Mm -hmm. the princess bride by s morgenstern well then morgenstern goes into this this rant for seven pages about what dress she wore and apparently it's an allegory for the economic hardships that were happening in the country at the time needless to say my father skipped over those pages so (laughs) we're just going to cut to the next part and like there's one chapter that's literally one page Mm -hmm. where it's him saying so at this point in the story my father always said what with one thing and another three years passed when I read the book for myself, I found out that this entire chapter is this long treatise on all the preparations for the wedding and the courtship and training her to be a princess and, and how it was an allegory for this and all sorts of political satire and blah, blah, blah. And there's been all this discourse about how brilliant it was. But the point of the matter is that nothing really happened. So I think I will leave you with what with one thing and another three years pass. (laughs) 
So I found this book delightful. It was so meta. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first time real. I can re- well, not the first time. I, I, it's very rare in my life that I've read a book that has caused me to have a, a reaction at like a critical point, like a physical reaction of what, where I like have to put the book down or I'm like, I'm like literally shocked. Like I remember when I read Prince Caspian, um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And at the end, when Aslan says that Lucy and Peter will never come back mm-hmm. to, to Narnia, I was like, <gasps> And it like washed over me with like, what? Mm -hmm. What? And the moment in the book when I read that Wesley was dead, Mm -hmm. I threw the book across the room. I was was like, what? And I threw it down. (laughs) And I was in the living room at the time. And my mom was like watching TV. And she's just like, what the hell? And I'm like, (laughs) he died. He died. He died. I mean, it was, I was pulling a Fred Savage as it would turn out. So here's this book that I absolutely loved. And it's so meta with the construct of this narrator who's at adapting it and, and telling this fascinating story about his father. And I'm like, and then they're like, oh, we're going to make a movie out of this. I'm like, you're going to fucking fail is what you're going to do. There is no way. And so the adaptation of taking it like back that generation Mm -hmm. of instead of trying to capture the narrator as an adult reflecting on his childhood. No, we're going to go back one generation to this is going to be the experience of the grandfather reading the book aloud. Brilliant. (laughs) Whoever came up with that was so smart and it solves so many problems. And whoever said, let's get Peter Falk. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and the fact that they found Fred Savage, who I re- mm-hmm. was a revelation. Because at that time in my life, I'm like, kids can't act. I hate watching kids act. They're terrible. Mostly. They are. They're awful. I mean, even the the vaunted Drew Barrymore. Go back and watch E.T. She's pretty terrible in that movie. <laughs> and she's horrible in Firestarter. Ugh. Well, that's kind of a horrible movie. It is kind of a horrible general. movie. <laughs> Speaking so, of adaptations... So they get, and then, you know, and then, you know, the usual adapting things they had to do to the story to tighten it up here or there, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But the adventure is all there. Mm -hmm. Fezzik is brilliant. Vizzini is brilliant. Inigo is brilliant. Oh, and Christopher Guest. And, (laughs) and, oh, and Chris Sarandon is such a wonderful dickhead as the prince. Peter Cook. Peter Cook briefly. Yeah, very briefly. Every, every brief. And, Knowledge. And <laughs> Carrie Elwes. Yeah. You couldn't have asked for a better Wesley. And Robin Wright. She didn't do a whole lot for me in that movie. Oh. But there wasn't a whole lot for her to do, so it's not her fault. I just can't help but think of, like, let's say somebody with the comic chops of, like, an Amy Poehler delivering those exact same lines. Like, especially the, you know, she kisses the king. Well, what was that for? Oh, you've just been so nice to me. And once we reach the bedroom, I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) Oh, that's nice then. That's nice then. (laughs) I just can't help but sort of picture what would it be like if you gave somebody with really, really good comedic chops that role? Or, well, did you say I do? Mm, No, we sort of skipped that part. (laughs) it's it's such a great moment and she's not terrible in the role i just think it's a little bland so that's 
that's my long story about Princess Bride to talk, but to make it clear how you can you can fundamentally change how you're going to tell the story, and yet they captured the feel of the book perfectly. They got they got tone even though they completely changed it, and that's what made me buy it. I'm like, aha, aha. Okay. Um, talking of unfilmable books, Clockwork Orange. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Have you have you read Clockwork I Orange? I did. I yeah. I read it without without the translations? Without the translations. I read it old school like balls to the wall. Well, if you know a little bit of Russian, you the translations or they mostly the, the words just, are pretty easy. But. Mostly I just depended on my and Sometimes you just got to own up to the fact you got game. I have superior reading context skills. Yeah. I do. I have an excellent vocabulary and I'm very good at pattern recognition. So while it it was definitely one of those that I had to, it took me a while to fall into the pattern. And occasionally I would have, more than occasionally, I would have to reread something several times then to get sort of, it, when I later became a teacher and I was having to read seventh grade inner city school writing and most especially spelling there comes a zen point Mm -hmm. sometimes with a student as their writing skills are so inept that you sort of read it and you sort of like with a 3d picture you allow your eyes to sort of glaze over and then the truth pops out sometimes you'd have to read these seventh graders writing and just sort of let your brain glaze over to go Aha, this is what they were going for. That's what Mm -hmm. they were saying. It was much like reading, that was much like reading Clockwork Orange. There's kind of this kaleidoscopic approach to language. Yeah, but that's what made it so great is that language was so fluid. It's one of the things I like about the internet for all that it seems very immature is language is being played with. Mm Mm-hmm. And manipulated so rapidly because we're using online, we're using written language in a way we never have before to mm-hmm. communicate frequently, and and to communicate tone in a way we haven't before. So we're shifting words around constantly as we play with them. So now we have words like amaze balls or recoculus, right? <laughs> and so imagine somebody trying to read this without like completely out of context what if they were trying to read my yeah. facebook feed completely out of context with no translation available mm-hmm. it would be very similar yeah, it would reading. be like trying to read the nadsat language yes in clockwork orange yeah it, it's, it's hardcore slang yeah yeah it, it's amazing stuff and uh, i i love the book i think i think the book is just hypnotic to read uh, i actually think yeah yeah and and i when I read as it, so I found it to true, be tremendously potent. As is so often true, I feel like the book delivers a bigger punch than the movie. Yeah. Which is funny because the movie is so cinematic and powerful. Mm-hmm. And yet there's something sometimes about allowing a book to get inside your brain that allows it to really grab your brain and twist it. And the ending of the book really, really grabs you mm-hmm. in a way that well, the, the nihilism of the movie is so overpowering. Well, yeah, it will also, it, it's, the movie is Stanley Kubrick, and, you know, naturally, Stanley Kubrick is a very cold director. He, he's very analytical, very, you don't get 
lush emotions out of nope. Stanley Kubrick. And in a lot of ways, I mean, that's very appropriate for adapting that book to a movie because you're up dealing... Up until the ending. Up until the ending. But I mean, you're dealing with, for most of the length of that story, that character is an emotional cipher. And yeah, in a lot of ways, Stanley Kubrick is kind of the perfect director for that sort of story. Uh, the unfortunate thing about the movie is that I think it misses one of the biggest punches in the book, which is um, at the end of the there the book is split into three sections. You know, the, the first you know the life of crime, the second is the uh, life in jail, and then the third is out into society. At the end of the first section, the very last line is the the scene is him going into prison essentially and the last line is and here i am only 14 years old and that was the first hint you ever got of, of his what age. His, of his age and of course that's not in the movie because at, at any point well and at, you couldn't do that because you've been watching this character you know how old right he is. and they chose to make him older yeah but i mean when you have malcolm mcdowell at that age, I mean, you just kind of roll with it. You just roll with it. But what is so powerful in the book is that he grows up. Yeah. That the soci- what seemed like this sociopathy, this this but this sociopathic behavior, this complete disregard for human life that seems so this character who just seems to lack any sort of humanity. Mm-hmm. And there comes a point at the end where He's sort of looking around and going, well, this is empty and meaningless. And maybe I do just sort of want to sit down and have a conversation with a girl. Yeah. And and I love what that says about the necessity of societal controls on our children. Yeah. <laughs> because they are, they are raging monsters. <laughs> and the only thing keeping them from doing horrible things as teenagers is parental and societal control until they can grow up and get past it to look around and go, oh, oh, maybe this is what I want. Now, mm-hmm. not necessarily true of all kids, but seriously, I taught that age group, and I can tell you the difference from 14 to 17 is enormous. <laughs> it's enormous. 14, they would cut off their finger if someone dared them to. Yeah. I shit you not. Yeah. They are yeah. dumb. They are brain damaged. They should <laughs> not be. You do not. Why we let them start driving at 16 is beyond me. Oh, my God. And yet by 18, the brain is starting to gel and it's starting to form connections and it's starting mm-hmm. to go, oh, maybe people actually have value even when they're not me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those years. Mm. And so... <laughs> What's funny is, you know, I read it when I was like 22 or 23 mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, that's an interesting twist. You know, now that I'm older and now that I've been a teacher and now that I'm looking back and now that I'm having to deal with that age group, I'm like, oh my God, this book is just, oh, it's so true. <laughs> the Now, the flip side of that is an angle that I think the movie found that the book didn't necessarily follow down the rabbit hole is that once you strip the capacity for violence away from somebody, they lose the capacity to defend themselves. Like, a certain amount of savagery is necessary in order to get along in the world. Um, at least the world we've created. And yeah, 
Yeah. And which but, I which I find to be a very interesting angle too. Well, it's which sounds much more condemning than I actually I per, my personal beliefs, which is mm. yeah, the one of the most powerful things about humanity is the ability to choose and if you've taken away my choice. Right. Then and all I can ever choose to be is the victim. I don't get a choice. I don't even get a choice to to say stop mm-hmm. and to walk away even mm-hmm. because I'm so now incapacitated by what you've done to me. Or or even just stand your ground. Yeah. 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 It's it's powerful stuff. And it's great. And and often if you can't make a true version of the book on screen, then the best thing to do is to choose to make a completely different movie. Yeah. And that's kind of what Kubrick did. Yeah, kind of. Kind of. I'm, but I mean, there there are a lot of things about the movie that are tremendously true to the book. Yeah, it's it's sort of, it, I say I mean, kind of because it's more, you walk away from the book with a completely different taste in your mouth than you do from the movie. Even it's though true. for about two thirds, we're kind of, we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. We're on the same page and we're moving, but that last third, they kind of veer off in different directions. There's lots of different ways to make a good adaptation. As it turns out. Like the movie adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) Which that is the most bizarre one ever. (laughs) I'm in love with that movie. It is so meta. We need to do we need to do an episode just on really meta. Yeah, I know, we need to. It will not include Inception. I don't actually care for that movie. But adaptation, I find that to be a fascinating way to adapt a novel because it's not actually an adaptation of the novel. It's talking about a writer who is trying to adapt the novel and utterly failing. I have to wonder how the fuck he got that movie made. Well, it's it's because it's Charlie Kaufman. But that's the... Th- and Charlie but, Kaufman can do no wrong. But even so, <laughs> it is so meta. It is so cerebral it is so far removed from the writing assignment he really was given Mm -hmm. that for him to turn that in and for them to go sure we'll make that into a movie and i mean and it's it's a thick movie it's a it is dense it is high concept it is really expecting you to think and and pay attention and follow along Mm -hmm. like when suddenly the orchid thief turns out to be a drug smuggler, right? Or something <laughs> yeah. like that? Yeah. And well, they, suddenly they're wielding guns and shit. Well, it, it, it's, it, it is a movie that is at the whim of its characters. Very literally. Because when you have different brothers, you know, taking over the story, which is really interesting because, yeah, whatever. Anyway, the different brothers taking over the story, it veers off into, you know, one of them wants to be high concept and the other one is clearly going for sheer entertainment value. And it's the push and pull between art versus entertainment. And it, I mean, it's brilliant. It's just so brilliant. But it just, how did you make this? How did any studio? I just, I'm so in awe and sort of impressed that a movie studio would say, Yes, we will make this film. <laughs> and we will cast Nicolas Cage as both the brothers. And Which is a good reminder that <laughs> there's a lot of reasons to love Nick Cage. One of them is he can actually fucking act. He can. He's he's amazing in that movie. But so, okay, if you don't know, dear listeners, okay. yes. there is a nonfiction book, right? Yeah, it's nonfiction. It's called The Orchid Thief. And it's about a man... 
who goes into swamps looking for orchids, which are incredibly hard to find. Yeah. And the woman who... The, the author basically follows him into the swamp story at the bottom. And, and the whole... His lifestyle and the greater context and all the usual things in, in those sorts of books. And that's the thing is that you know it's like in those sorts of books. Yeah. And so Charlie Kaufman was hired to write an adaptation of The Orchid Thief. And the movie that you watch is Charlie Kaufman trying to write an adaptation of The Orchid Thief, except that in this movie version, Charlie Kaufman has a twin brother. Yeah, Donald which, Kaufman. Which he does not have in real life. Yeah, in a fake fake twin brother. A fake twin brother. And who is also a screenwriter, or trying to be a screenwriter. Try, he's trying to be, and so he's gone to the seminar, and there's like a whole like checklist of how to write a blockbuster Uh and so there are random cameos and so as charlie kaufman is trying to write this script that he is finding to be unwritable and his brother is offering advice on how to write a blockbuster and then offering how he would write the scenes so then you have you go into the world of the book which is meryl streep and chris cooper yes for fuck's sake (laughs) And they're and they're acting out these scenes that some are written by Charlie and some are written by Donald and they're very different and it's crazy. And then there are scenes with Charlie just pure writer's block like if I write another paragraph I can get a cup of coffee. If I write it if, <laughs> if I Okay, I'm going to get a cup of coffee and then I'm going to write a paragraph. It's just and the negotiations of it and then there are all the cameos. And and just Meryl Streep just bringing it. Oh, she's fantastic. <laughs> and but Chris Cooper too. He's well, yeah. He's he's he just kind of disappears into his character as Chris Cooper is wont to do. Oh my but, god! Oh, and, it's so and much so fun. it's this. And my favorite part, and I know I've mentioned this on the podcast, is Donald after going to the seminar has has a concept for the perfect blockbuster. <laughs> yes. And he delivers it. What's so beautiful is they're at a swimming... I remember it's a swimming pool and there's a couple of like known actresses, like Mm -hmm. cameos being delivered. I don't recall by who. And both Charlie and Donald are there. And Donald is telling this this idea that he has. And both actresses are like, oh my God, that's brilliant. I would totally sign on for that. If you get an... You're going to get an agent. Make sure that they call me, right? Like, oh, oh, I want to do your movie. And the concept is the three. Mm-hmm. The three where there's a serial killer and he's stalking this one particular victim and there's the cop who's going to save the victim. And they're all... And the, and so the cop is trying to hide the victim, but the steri- serial killer is stalking them and they're on the run and blah, blah, blah. And the twist is they're all the same person because it's multiple pers- personality disorder. <laughs> And the way it's delivered in the movie, when he says this, you're just like, what the fuck? That is a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. That's just ridiculous. And Charlie's just looking at him like, I can't even. I, <laughs> I have lost the ability to even. And, and of course, none of this has anything to do with the orchid thief. And yet it's in the movie. But it, it, it's the orchid thief is what, like maybe 20% of the movie? <laughs> yeah. Because it, the rest is writer's block. And trying to adapt. Yeah. And what it's like to be a writer. It's, it's just great. But I, I love that step back of, well, if you can't write The Orchid Thief, write something about The Orchid Thief. 
write about how hard it was to write the adaptation <laughs> of the Orchid and, King. And somehow it, it just wound up being brilliant. And so here's an adaptation where they took a book and went, okay, well, here's kind of the book, but let's really talk about this other thing. <laughs> But the content of the book is all there and the essentials are there too. Because, I mean, they they do go through kind of the big high points of the book by way of the movie, which is, which I find fascinating. It's, But it is kind of, but it feels incidental. It's kind of like, so here's a topic and I want to tell you about the topic, but mostly I want to tell you about me. So let me tell you about me and what I think of the topic. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, I think this topic is difficult. I really kind of just want to talk about how difficult I find it to be. You don't mind, do you? (laughs) That's what the movie is like. And it's so great. It is. And the funniest part is that a year later, Identity starring John Cusack came came out. out. Yeah. And 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 it was the three. It was the three. I sat down. I went to see it because the trailer made it look like some sort of supernatural thriller. I, I thought... You know what? This is worth five bucks for a matinee, and it's worth my time. I'll have a good time, and this could be kind of interesting. I don't know what this is about. And when the twist happened, I was like, "What the shit? <laughs> it's the three And I started laughing in the movie theater very inappropriately. Luckily, there were only like ten people there. <laughs> I'm just like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Charlie oh. Kaufman! I wonder if Charlie." considering it came out so soon after i wonder if charlie kaufman had like caught wind of this script or maybe nudged it (laughs) no somebody couldn't have like read the script and and heard about the three and been like actually that's a good idea i'll make it (laughs) and then john cusack you signed up for a john why oh he makes some questionable decisions oh number station is really oh the raven oh so we should talk about Apocalypse Now. I can't remember if I read the book or not. Heart of, Heart of Darkness is kind of hard to get through. It's just, I know it's a small novel. Oh, it doesn't feel like that. And I don't think I have. It's I very racist I... and very sexist, as I, as I recall. I mean, last time I, re- I read Heart of Darkness was in high school, which was a billion years ago. I think but... I started it but didn't finish it, because I know yeah. I read, like, the first chapter. <laughs> It's kind of dense, and yeah, I didn't enjoy. Well, I didn't enjoy it very much, but I don't think that's a sort of book that you generally read to enjoy. It might not be the mo- a book he intended you to enjoy. Yeah, no, I, I probably not. But it's, it's not a pleasant read. We'll just leave it at that. Oh, yeah. But Apocalypse Now, I find to be a fascinating movie, and I like that. It's a movie that takes the core of the book, the core concept, and transports it into a different setting, which is the Vietnam War. Well, a lot of adaptations are really successful at that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, the trappings are going to be distracting. I want to talk about this idea you brought out. Right. So I'm going to move it over here. Mm-hmm. Which I know. I mean, even having not read the book, I know. Because Heart of Darkness is Africa? Yeah, it's like going into the Congo or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And in and as we know, Apocalypse Now is it is Vietnam. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the very core is the same. It's you know one character sent off to find this rogue 
colonel who has gone off and started his own enclave out in the wilderness and gone native, so to speak. But, uh, uh, that's who plays that in the movie? Brando. Yeah, that's, I, I was like, I'm right, right? So this is like the island of Dr. Moreau again. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or first. <laughs> first. First. He does wear underwear, though, in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I presume so. I mean, you don't you don't see dangly bits. In... <laughs> well, you didn't in Island of Dr. Moreau. And thank you, unnamed special effects technician. That is true. Worst job ever. Yeah. <laughs> I need to tell you about a documentary I saw. Anyway, <laughs> Apocalypse Now, I think, is actually one of my favorite movies. I mean, it, it's it's something I haven't watched in a very long time, but I revisit it once every five years or so, and I'm always impressed by it. And here's the it. point where we add to the list. Yeah. Oh, you have not seen Apocalypse Now. Oh. I know. It, it's, it's Francis Ford Coppola you know, in in some of his finest work and I, and it's Martin I have no Sheen I have no beef. It's just it's kinda like um Schindler's list. It is well in well, that there are there are important movies that are great movies that are actually really good movies and yet you know they're gonna be so upsetting that it's like, how do I find the right mindset to sit down and watch this movie? It is rare that I'm gonna come home and go, you know what I really want to do? Mm-hmm. I really want to be upset by a movie. <laughs> well, so Apoc- I think I'll pop in Apocalypse Now. Well, Apocalypse Now is I, is not that upsetting. I mean, it is. I mean, the whole concept is kind of a descent into hell concept, but it, it's more of a descent into uh, savagery isn't quite the right term either. But, you know, going Still from not going, going from civilization into chaos. Still not selling me, but it's. I mean, it's I a will... war movie, but it, it it's it it's not. It, it certainly doesn't evoke the same feelings as Schindler's List. That's for sure. Yeah, but would you call it a feel good movie? Well, it's not a feel good movie. See, point made. <laughs> now this, but is it does have say... a seventeen year old Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> but yes, uh, Apocalypse Now. I there was a really remarkable. Not a director's cut, but it was. It came out as Apocalypse Now Redux. Yeah, I want to. I want to say fifteen years ago now, which I like. I think as much as the theatrical cut, which is surprising for me because I'm. I'm. I tend to like the more compact versions of well, things. Yeah, generally what they put out. There were reasons why they made those cuts. Yeah, but the the Redux version, the stuff they added, I found to be really interesting in context because there is a very large... uh, One of the biggest things that they added back in is this very large sequence where they go into a French plantation in Vietnam, which is this very interesting kind of Mm. contextual aside in, in the war. Uh, among among other things, there were several other scenes that had been cut out that were actually quite good, but it makes for a very long, long movie. But yeah, I I'm I'm really fascinated by the movie Apocalypse Now. There's also a uh, really great documentary about the make the making of Apocalypse Now called Hearts of Darkness. I did because know that it is. Apocalypse Now is one of those movies that are storied and legendary for how difficult it was to get made. Because <laughs> there were 
horrible things that happened on that set. Like Martin Sheen had a heart attack on one of the first days of filming. Uh, he wasn't even that old. No, he was an he. If he wasn't an alcoholic, he had imbibed a lot of alcohol on that day of filming. Or yeah. Huh. Well, it it was that era. Um, it was that era, and it, yeah, among other things, you know, like you start out with Martin Sheen having a heart attack, and then you kind of go from there. It was crazy. Yeah, hugely expensive sets that just vanish in storms and stuff like that. And then Martin Brand, Marlon Brando shows up and 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 you know bestows all that Marlon Brando magic upon. Everybody sprinkles it like fairy dust all over the place. It's horrible, Marlon Brando. Horrible, Ooh. horrible fairy dust. Ooh, Marlon Brando. Oh, Marlon Brando dust. That does not sound good. Nope, nope. So, in terms of an adaptation, I think it's a very faithful adaptation in terms of concept, hmm. and I think it's there. There are so many things I find distasteful about the original book especially in the concept of reading it now. It's like, oh, you don't talk about non-white people like that. And you don't... don't well, but yeah, we did. It's not very... That, yeah, I mean, that, to gloss that over would be, you know, glossing over history and to deny it ever happened, which it most certainly did. But it kind of takes all those core concepts and installs them into a part of American history, which I think really enhanced the understanding of those concepts well it, it, there there was kind of when this did apocalypse now come out it came out in the late 70s i want to say 78 so this was still when we were constructing our narrative about what exactly happened yeah it's one of the earlier vietnam movies yeah because and i still think one of the best i think it's it while not telling the story of vietnam directly it uses the trappings of vietnam to give you a larger concept of what was really going on there yeah we should probably wrap this one up because i think we've been going for a really long time yeah <laughs> we babbled a lot we did we did as we so often do as we are yeah want, we were we were on a roll as we are want we are to do w-o-n-t won't as we won't to do. So adaptations are fascinating. I love every opportunity to see a story from different viewpoints. So like one of the ideas we were tossing around, dear listeners, is um, maybe doing episodes about different versions of the same movie mm -hmm. or a book that has been made into several movies or like sh versions of Shakespeare um, Three Musketeers would be super fun because there's been a lot yeah. of Three Musketeer movies. <laughs> Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> Three Musketeers tickles me because I just watched that steampunk one and oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh boy. I... Is that the one that came out a couple years ago? Yes, oh, with Mia boy. Jovovich. Oh boy. And Orlando Bloom. Oh, boy. Now, put that up against the one with Kiefer Sutherland and Oliver Platt. Huh. <laughs> huh. Although the one with Kiefer Sutherland does have Oliver Platt. I think we need more <laughs> movies with Oliver Platt and Stanley Tucci together. I agree. The imposters all the way. More. Yeah, more. 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 More Oliver Platt. More Oliver Platt, more Stanley Tucci. You know what? The Three Musketeers steampunk version is 
the steampunk version of the movie Da Vinci Code should have been. Because <laughs> a, a six-foot-tall okay. albino monk assassin would have fit in that Three Musketeers movie. I think that's a good way to end this episode. So this has been Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I've been Wendy. That's been Melissa. And we will talk to you soon. And please, dear listeners, go to our website and answer our questions. Because we want to read your questions we, we on the air. We love reading your questions on the air and reading your answers on the air, if we should say. Because yeah, yeah. we love that stuff. We love that stuff. We love to read your answers on the air. And if you're listening, you should talk to us. We It's sort of a vacuum here. <laughs> it's a sensory deprivation chamber with nothing but wine and movies. And wine and movies. Yeah, that's not too bad. But, yeah. but we like you to be with us, too. Yes, please join us. Yes. Yay. All right. Yay. Thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes arrive every Thursday. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also visit us at xanaducinema.com, follow us on Twitter at Xanadu Cinema, and like us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Nicely done.